It's time. Time for stimulating talk. Time for thought-provoking conversation. Time for the Lisa Wexler Show on WICC 600 AM and 107.3 FM. Turn on your brain and get the real scoop on today's topics and events. Here is Lisa Wexler. Hola, good morning. Good morning, good morning. It's a rainy day. I've got my boots on for the day. 203-333-9422. We're going to have a great show for you today. We have two people coming on with these very extraordinary backgrounds that are very, very committed. Eric, can you do me a favor and stop the snowflakes? (laughs) I'm getting a little dizzy in here from the snowflakes. Anyway, we have two people coming in that are really involved and passionate about what they do in the world. And those are the kind of people that I love to talk with. Those are the kind of people I love to learn from. So at 1030, Christine Lay is coming on. She might pronounce it lie. And she started an organization. Now listen to this. She started an organization right here in Fairfield County, which helps people fund the lawyers that they need to advocate for special ed kids. Because one of the barriers that families have is money. And when they have a special needs child and they want to advocate for services and they feel like they're getting a brick wall from a public school system, they often don't know what to do and don't know how to approach it. And even if they knew how to approach it, they may not have the money to be able to afford to approach it. So Christine started an organization that it is my understanding, it's a nonprofit, that gathers money to help these families. And I thought, well, you might be one of those families, and you might want to know how to access this money. So that's why I've asked Christine to be on the show. And she's coming on at 1030 this morning. Also... Greg Katz is coming on again at a on an encore presentation because I want to make him a regular. He also did a superb TED Talk, by the way. And he has a resume that is so long and so impressive in green technology. And he has started something called the Smart Surfaces Coalition. And the Smart Surfaces Coalition is a coalition of big deal rich companies, Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies, and they have gathered together and pooled their money, their resources, to try and create better, more beneficial surfaces, right? Literally surfaces on planet Earth as an alternative to what we're doing right now because what we're doing right now exacerbates our climate change, It makes hot hotter. It makes cold crack. In other words, things crack from the cold. It's not doing anything helpful. It uses a lot of petroleum. Think about asphalt. So the Smart Services Coalition is, well, let's take a look at what we are doing in covering our planet, our building surfaces, our highway surfaces, our our grass, you know, our turf as opposed to grass. And let's really take a close look at the chemicals we're putting on our land and how we can do better. And I was so impressed with Greg Katz the last time that he came on that I invited him on again because I just think that this man is full of so much information. And then, of course, we want to translate that information into action. The Lisa Wexler Show is all about solutions. We know the problems very often, the frustration, the disconnect is what are we going to do about it? And sometimes I have been accused of skipping the 
part where we rent our garments and talk a lot about our feelings because I want to go right to the solution. And I realize that there is a space for feelings and there is a space for talking about that, but I am a solutions-driven person. And with you having a limited time in this planet, on the world, to listen to this broadcast, I want to bring you those solutions. So today we have two guests that are coming on that have created solutions to problems. 203-333-9422 is our number. You can call me at 203-333-9422. Also, our podcast of the Lisa Wexler Show is reinventing itself, and you're going to be noticing that it's going to be shorter. It's not going to be the whole show. If you want to hear the whole show, that's going to be a different kind of a platform coming up. But at the beginning, we are just going to push out the podcast. So I'm asking you, as a listener to this show, to please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes if you're a podcast listener. If you're somebody who, at an odd moment, when you're exercising at the end of your day, when you're just trying to catch up, if you're somebody who wants to rehear a segment or just remember that this is a show that has information that, if you haven't had a chance to listen to, it's important to you, then please do download our podcast, 203-333-9422. Okay, let me begin with some news stories. And I actually want to begin with a free speech story about Elon Musk, who I know gets an awful lot of press elsewhere. But what I wanted to tell you about Elon Musk is that he has been full of this idea that the First Amendment free speech is all about absolutism, that everybody, all the haters, everybody has to be in the mix because that's what free speech means. And one of the reasons he said he wanted to buy Twitter for $44 billion is because he felt that this was such an important outlet for free speech and it had been compromised by management in recent years that had muzzled Donald Trump, for example, and other people. And he felt that this outlet was so important to the world that he wanted to own it so he could control and manage it. And in controlling and managing it, uh, which has just been a little while, he has fired a lot of people. He has let his rent for the offices in Silicon Valley go unpaid because he wants to renegotiate his leases. That's not an uncommon thing for people that want to play hardball. Um, But he has also uh, unmuzzled some people that were frequently muzzled, and the hate speech on Twitter has gone way up if you measure these kinds of things. The reason I wanted to talk with you about this is because last night he decided to ban a bunch of journalists. He banned a bunch of journalists from the Washington Post, from CNN, from a lot of other news outlets, a bunch of independent journalists. You remember Keith Oberman, who used to be on MSNBC. He banned him. He banned a lot of people, familiar and otherwise. And the reason he banned them is because they've been criticizing him and they have been investigating him. Now, he says that he banned them because they went too far and that one of them or more of them tracked where his helicopter was going. And he said, and these are his words, that those were assassination points. In other words, he's afraid someone might try and kill him. He's afraid for the safety of himself and his family. And he thinks that some journalists went too far in pinpointing his location. Uh, And that may be fair and reasonable, but a lot of the journalists that were banned said no such thing, that they investigate him, they report on him, they did not pinpoint those coordinates. And basically what he's doing is a grand sweep of a censorship of his own accusers. So 
you know, jacques, right? It's, it's, it's all about hypocrisy. The other thing that you should know about Elon Musk that I find important is that he's been selling off his Tesla stock. Now, I told you yesterday that Tesla had crashed about 55% in the last year, and a lot of Tesla investors are saying, excuse me, we invested in Tesla, Elon Musk, because we thought you were paying attention to the electric car. Now you're paying so much attention to Twitter that we think you're neglecting us, and you better come back here and pay attention to us. Otherwise, this stock is going to continue to tank, and that's not going to be good for anybody. But he's also sold several billion dollars worth of his Tesla stock in the last few months. And obviously, he's selling it because he needs money to pay for his $44 billion acquisition of Twitter, which is a little bit running amok right now. So listen, people have second-guessed Elon Musk before, and they've been wrong. They have underestimated him, and they've been wrong. But it's not to me about that. To me, it's about the fact that here he is, and he took over a free speech platform, And what is he doing? He is censoring the people on it because he feels that they are personally wounding him. I'm not sure that's in keeping with his original mission. And by the way, the European Union has already said that that they are going to be imposed consequences against him because they don't like the way he is running it. So that's what I wanted to tell you. Accounts for the New York Times, Ryan Mack, Washington Post, Drew Harwell, CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan, Mashable's Matt Binder, independent journalist Aaron Mupar all disappeared last night, as did several others, because they wrote about the $44 billion takeover of Twitter. Aaron Mupar telling NBC's Ben Collins he had no idea why this suspension happened. Other suspensions rolled in later in the evening, including Keith Olbermann, Tony Webster, and Mika Lee, a reporter for The Intercept. And a message on the account simply says they have been suspended for violating Twitter's rules. Musk shared a poll asking his 121 million followers, wow, if the accounts should be unsuspended immediately or after a seven-day ban. He wrote, seven-day suspension for doxing sometime away from Twitter is good for the soul. And he attempted to defend the company's actions when he was asked about that by saying everyone on this call would not like that if it were done to them. There's not going to be any distinction in the future between journalists and regular people. You're not special because you're a journalist. And in the meantime, as I said, he sold $3.5 billion worth of Tesla stock in the last months. 203-333-9422. We're going to turn to local news coming right up. There is a big controversy in Westport, Connecticut that hasn't gone away. And the, the controversy is about the removal of something called the River of Names, which is a tiled work of art that had been in the library and then removed when the newest library was rebuilt. And now there is an enormous controversy with a lot of discussion and heated debate about whether the library is doing the right thing in saying that it will not have the River of Tiles names come back to the library because they think that it is insufficiently reflective of the diversity of Westport's history. And there is a lot of back and forth over this, including a latest story this morning. So if you want to weigh in on that, we're going to give that story a little room to breathe. 203-333-9422 is our number. We'll be right back. Here's what Connecticut is saying about Lisa Wexler. Your show is great, and it's such a, a light in the world. Now, back to the Lisa Wexler Show on Southern Connecticut's news and information leader, WICC 600 AM and 1073 FM. 
We're going to turn to that Westport story in just a moment at 203-333-9422. But before that, let's go to Juan in West Haven, who wants to address Elon Musk and his controversy now that he's raised by banning a bunch of journalists on Twitter. Hey, Juan, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning, Ms. Wexler. How are you doing? Fine. Excellent. So um, I just want to chime in into into uh, why is this guy being personally uh, attacked uh, for buying Twitter? And also, by the way, the reason why he takes out money, obviously, is to pay for, for the purchases of, of, of Twitter. But it seems to me like when Twitter was run by the other guy that owned it, uh, I forget uh, his name. But Jack anyway, Dorsey. It's a publicly traded Dorsey, company, by yeah. the way, but Dorsey founded it. Yeah, I understand. It's a publicly uh, traded company. However, ever since uh, Mr. Elon bought uh, Twitter, there's nothing but controversy coming out of the, the so-called journalist. I mean, really, uh, the guy uh, in buys this company and is finding out all the machinations that were going on behind the scenes, and he's exposing people and, and whatnot, and all of a sudden, he's an evil man. I, I don't understand that. He can, he can do whatever he wants. It's his company, right? He bought it. He, Tesla is his company. He bought it, and he actually he started it. And now all I hear is, oh, he's, he's no good. He's uh, this. He's that. I, I don't get it. I'll tell you. you I'll explain. explain I will explain it to you, Juan. Let's talk about okay. Tesla and then Twitter. They're two different companies entirely. Two different companies. Right. Absolutely. So yeah. Tesla is still a publicly traded company. And what that means is yeah. that when you and I buy stock in it, we have yes. uh, we uh, the people that are behind it have a responsibility to us to try and continue to run the company well and to optimize stock performance. They don't always do it, but they have a responsibility to try. So the criti- so the criticism against Elon Musk by the Tesla people is, hold on a minute, hold on, our stock has gone down fifty five percent. Now the general market has gone down fifteen to twenty percent, but Tesla has underperformed, and it's underperformed in a time in which the whole world is apparently moving to electric. So they're just saying, hey, listen, we invested in Tesla because we believed in your vision. And it looks like right now you're very distracted. You're only one human being after all. And you're very distracted with another company. And we are saying to you, Elon Musk, your eye needs to be back on the ball of Tesla because this is where we've invested our money. That's what they're saying. And it's a reasonable, it's a reasonable, um, what's the word, um, criticism because they are seeing their stock underperform in relationship to the entire market. So that's, that's one thing, Juan. With respect to Twitter, um, with respect to Twitter, it, it is astonishing how much has been uncovered since Elon Musk has gone in and be, been at the helm of it. A lot of people are very happy to see that they've uncovered a lot of bias, that they've uncovered a lot of um, things that they didn't admit to in terms of whose accounts they squelched and whose they didn't. But what Elon Musk is being accused of today is hypocrisy. Because either you believe in free speech and everybody has a voice and the marketplace of ideas will determine which voices should prevail and which should not, or you don't believe in it. And so that's that's all it is. He's being accused of hypocrisy. That's all. No, well, but yeah, but but he is taking out those people that are doxing him, right, for 
following him everywhere he goes, and he's afraid that somebody's going to kill him. Understood. It's a reasonable thing. It is, re- right? it is reasonable, reasonable, but the people that he objected to were saying, they are, they are saying on other forums and other platforms, I didn't dox you. And so, therefore, you're banning me, well, but here's what I did do. I did investigate you. I did report about you. I might have said negative things about you. And so it looks to me like I didn't dox you, but you want to silence me. So that's what's happening, Juan. That's the world of ideas we're living in. He has a lot of power. He has 121 million followers on Twitter alone. He has millions and millions of small and large investors who have invested in Tesla, who are riding his Tesla cars now, who love their Teslas, who think it's the best car they've ever owned. There are millions of people in this world who think Elon Musk, you know, is is one of the most brilliant people ever to be on this planet. But, you know, he's human. He's mortal. And once in a while, he's going to get criticized, too. Yeah, understood, understood. Um, but like I said, at the end of the day, he he owns the company. And, he owns one of the companies. Uh, he doesn't own Tesla. Well, I... And, 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 that's, I, and, and I it's the stockholders of Tesla, I'm just letting being clear, that are very right. angry with him. Right, right. So, but if you look at uh, uh, tech companies, some of them have gone down uh, more than 60% in value as well. It's not just Tesla. So... Um, Tesla's yeah. underperformed. Juan, I'm going to move on. Thank you for the call. 203-333-9422. All right, so I want to just talk about something else going on. So this is a much smaller kind of an issue, but it's an issue uh, in a town, and it is got a lot of people in the town upset because of what it's raising, of the kind of issues it's raising. So essentially there was, back in 1991 or 1992, I think it was, there was a beautiful tile wall. It was actually started as a fundraiser for the Westport Library. And everybody in town was asked to contribute a little bit of money. And if they contribute a little bit of money, they could have a tile and they could have the tile say whatever it wanted. And I know this because I bought a tile and mine says, Wexler's arrived 1989, Lisa Bill, Jonathan, Joanna. And it's a little pretty little handmade tile. And this river of tile walls was populated. It's mostly those kinds of things. You know, the Wexers are here, the Smiths are here, the Shapiros are here, the Dickinsons are here, whatever. And it's a lot of that, and it's fun. And it raised $350,000 at the time for the library, not an insignificant sum, certainly back in 1991. But it was also a work of art by Marion Grebo, who has since passed. And... The work of art was populated by these very pretty personalized custom tiles. And then here and there dotted throughout it were, you know, like, and the Minutemen arrive, right? And here are the cannons um, and different events. You know, George Washington stopped here. Different kinds of things in Westport's history. It was very pretty, very pretty. And unfortunately, when the library was dismantled, because the library has been rebuilt many, many times, but when it was dismantled in 2019, they didn't know what to do with the tile wall, and they didn't have an obvious place to put it in the new library. So it's been in storage, and it's been in storage with a promise that someday it would reappear. Now, there are a couple of ladies that have been in touch with the library, and they were offered a compromise to have this tile wall be sort of like around a corner. So in other words, not all on the same surface so that it couldn't be looked at as one piece. They were not happy with that. They rejected that. And so it stayed in storage. Well, the Library Board of Trustees, in consultation with the Museum of, of 
Culture, which used to be called the Westport Historical Society, but it's now the Westport Museum of, I think, History and Culture. And in consultation with TEAM, which is a diversity equity group that are members of which are appointed by the first selectmen in town that talk about issues of diversity and inclusion and equity, they all decided that this work of art was not inclusive enough and didn't take into account various things and various populations in Westport, and therefore wasn't worthy, wasn't worthy of being put up at all. And this, and this alone, is what has stirred tremendous controversy in Westport. You can go on the 06880 blog, which Dan Wu writes, and you can read about it. You can read about the controversy in Westport Journal or on Westport Local. And the controversy is essentially boiled down to this. Number one, the mural the tile mural was never intended to be a complete expose and dispositive history of Westport. It was what it was. It makes no apologies for what it was. It was what it was. Number two, any inaccuracies in any of the tiles can be handled with a contextual explanation next to it on the wall, which could correct the inaccuracy or explain it in context, the way we continue to explain our history, hopefully in context. Uh, And so those are the two. And number three, and now in the latest that I read this morning, uh, the library uh, as a board of trustees issued yet another explanatory uh, letter and defended itself, did not take into account that, frankly, some of the original founders of the library were slaveholders. Jessup Green, Jessup himself, owned slaves. Coley of Coley Town owned slaves. I mean, if you go about the history of Westport, it is shocking, but it is nonetheless true that many of the founders of Westport were slaveholders and slave owners. And so if you're going to be really clear and really honest and you're going to say we can't have this and we can't have that because this isn't inclusive and that isn't inclusive, well, then then it becomes sort of an endless, an endless kind of debacle. And where do you stop and where do you start? So that's the controversy. I'm going to ask Carla of Westport, who's been holding a long time now. Carla, you'd like to talk about this controversial issue? Go ahead, please. Hi. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm good. Mom Mom is, you know what? Thank you for asking. Mommy came home from rehab yesterday. I just spoke to her this morning. She sounds so relaxed and happy. She said, Lisa, I'm walking. So we have the 24-7 aid for a few days, and we will definitely be able to move back from 24-7, hopefully soon, and she'll need some assistance for a while. But she sounds like a new person, Carla. She sounds so happy to be home. So happy to be home. Give her my love. I will. I will. So I want to talk about the Rivers of Maine. I mean, that was born because the library needs more. And... I don't understand these issues about inclusions because it was open to everyone. And, of course, the people that bought the tile that contribute to the library were Westport citizens. And they are the ones that raise all those money. I mean, it is what it is. That's who lives in Westport. And a lot of that really marks history in Westport. Like in my case, my husband and I bought two tiles. One tiles, uh, which has the poster and the date of the first festival Italiano in Westport. Mm, Nice. And the other tile has my name and my husband Michael's name 
as the founders for the first time of the first of the Sons of Italy, the West Coast Sons of Italy. Wow. So I don't understand what is the problem about this inclusion. Because if everybody could participate and included and at that time there was people in Westport which could be part of this inclusion. But they decide not to. So, you know, it is what it is. Well, I think and by I, inclusion, I think it's really a very, I think they're taking a swipe at the artist, frankly. They're taking a swipe at Marion Grebo in that her tiles were not inclusive enough. I mean, that seems to me what it is. I don't think that they're taking a swipe at the thousands or hundreds of Westport citizens who bought tiles. It seems to me that my reading between the lines is they're really not happy with the artist and the artistic decision to to choose and create the tiles that she created. That's how I read it. Maybe I read it wrong, but that's how I read yeah, it. But Lisa, she didn't create the tiles. I mean, she had the tiles. And uh, we uh, told her what we want on the tiles. On some of them. But there's a bunch of them that she is an artist uh, populated that were not paid for by the public that were part of this creation. Okay. So, but still. But there still. Was a first, right. You know, it doesn't make any sense. I think the library trustee is doing an injustice. I think that maybe if they don't have room in the library, there is a wall, a town hall, where they always hang um, arts from different people. And that wall can be used to put the river of names. Well, you know, Carla, it's, you know, I think it would be a shame to simply toss this beautiful tile of names and maybe there really is an opportunity in another town hall building to put it someplace because the library clearly doesn't want it and they also said and this may be true and this probably was true from the beginning that they don't have a 20-foot wall to put it on so that it can all look at the same in other words they originally offered to make it around a corner which would cut it which would cut it and so maybe they their building just doesn't have a solution for this you know maybe but we have other buildings in town. And I think Town Hall has that wall. Yeah. When you come in from the back, when you used to come in from the back. Do you think that this issue is going to end up as a work of art that belongs to the town? Because, you know, the town owns so much art. We even have an art committee. And I work in Town Hall. And every year they do another inventory and they change the art on the walls of my courtroom and on the walls of my hallway. Do you think that maybe this will end up reverting to a town-owned property? might. I, I would love that. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't, then I wanted my tiles back. Oh, interesting. Then I keep my tiles. Oh, wow. I tiles, and I have the history for my children, my grandchildren in my house. Yeah. I would frame my tile, too. I loved my tile. It was so pretty. She was such a beautiful artist, Marion. It was so I, beautifully yeah. done. I yeah. mean, I hope they're not going to destroy any art. Mm-hmm. I hope they're not going to destroy any what I believe is town property. And I hope they're not going to destroy anything that I paid for it. 
Well, it's interesting it's about way. destroying art because I, for a library to destroy art, I can't imagine they would do such a thing. It would be like burning a book. It would be so anathema to the values of a library. I can't imagine that they would destroy it. But now there's a problem about who's going to pay for storage of it. So they have to find a solution. Maybe, maybe the RTM needs to debate this. Maybe this needs to well, go to the RTM. I mean, the storage is another issue because we gave to the library for years the house on Baron Property South for them to storage all the book and whatever they didn't have room for it. Mm. So all the time they have no room for our tiles. Interesting. But I don't want the tiles to be storage, Lisa. Mm-hmm. The tile represents a lot of it, Westport history, yes. Westport old family. Mm-hmm. So they should be somewhere. And if cannot be somewhere, then I wanted my two tiles back. Okay. Thank you, Carla. That's Carla from Westport. Thanks for joining us. Yep, I know that this issue has brought a lot of opinions to the forefront. Thank you for joining us. All right, we're going to be right back, and we're going to talk with a woman who decided to come upon a solution, and this is going to be addressed at families of kids with special needs. So stick around for some very important information that you may be able to use. 203-333-9422. It's the Lisa Wexler Show, and we'll be right back. Where New Canaan comes first for news and talk. The Lisa Wexler Show on WICC 600 AM and 107.3 FM. And welcome back to the show. Okay, so in our solutions obsession. Uh, One of the things we know is that there are people out there that really do work very hard at solutions. And one of the missions of our show is to bring you some of them. Christine Lai is with us right now. She is the co-founder and executive director of something called the Special Education Legal Fund, which clearly is a 501c3 that was founded to be a solution for parents who needed help. And this particular fund was founded in 2018 by parents for parents who have children with special needs, who are in the special education system, who require a lawyer to help them advocate to get that special ed because it's a tremendous bureaucracy that so many parents are facing. Christine Lai is with us in the studio. Hi, Christine. Thanks for coming in. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. So I had read about Self for a while, and I congratulate you. Oh, thank you. And I want to hear from you, what is the mission of this organization? Well, thank you for asking me that, Lisa. I mean, I am not an attorney or an advocate or... Well, you're clearly an advocate. Or a professional advocate, or a teacher, or an educator, or anything like that. Um, you know, what I am is a mother of a now 18-year-old son who has autism. Okay. And when my husband and I went through this process, you know, 12, 13 years ago, we found it to be an incredibly difficult, confusing, and challenging process, even for families who have knowledge and resources. And What town are you in? Greenwich. Mm-hmm. So... At that time, you know, we struggled through this process kind of on our own, learning as we went. You know, all of these things, you know, special education particularly, tends to happen when you're also having difficulty with your child just in general. Yeah, behavioral issues, a million other things. Absolutely. And you're groping. You're groping because, you know, people are not reduced to their diagnoses. Right. Every individual, particularly, I would argue, people with a diagnosis of autism are complex and individual. That's absolutely correct. And, you know, as we struggled with this process, you know, and, you know, ultimately emerged, you know, from this with the support that he needed at the time, it occurred to me that 
you know, how many other parents were in this situation that didn't have the knowledge or the resources or the ability to push or the inclination to push when you need to push to advocate for your child. And so that was really the genesis of Special Education Legal Fund. In the beginning, we were an organization that was founded to provide grants for legal support to families in need with children in the the special education system in Connecticut. So you're gathering money from wealthier parents to assist poorer parents? That's absolutely right. That's a very beautiful thing to do. Oh, thanks. And how much money does it have? So over the last four years, we've given grants of over $550,000 to families in about 60 school districts in Connecticut You're and Westchester kidding. County. You've given over a half a million dollars away? It has been um, really just a tremendous um, blessing to be able to do that, that we've had that support. How? Uh, and so obviously this was started with your own money. Not really. And it really was, I mean, listen, I, um, my, you know, as I said, I'm not Christine, a lawyer. Christine, come closer to the mic. Oh, sorry. There you go. Um, I was trying to see your face. I'm I know. Sorry. It's hard, right? Yeah, it Stupid is. Stupid Mike Flagg. The, yeah. um, in the beginning, you know, I'm not a lawyer, um, but I have worked with a variety of nonprofit organizations, and my background is as is in, um, you know, is is trading stocks for a hedge fund. Oh, so, so you know about money. I know a little bit about money. Yeah. So at the beginning, you know, what we were really, I, I looked at it in the way that I would have looked at it is I, if I was starting a hedge fund. You know, let's get money from friends and family. Let's put this money to work. Let's have results. Let When we have results, we go broader, we go deeper, we raise more money, we have more results. And that's really the way that I was looking at it at the time. It's, just, it's still the way I look at it is that, you know, we provide support to families. and But ultimately, at the end of the day, we're trying to achieve results from the, for those families. So how much of your own money did you put in to start with? Not that much. Actually, what's not that much? Fifty thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand. What's not that much? I mean, you know, maybe five, maybe five. And all the rest was other families. Absolutely. How did you have a network of so many generous people who were willing to fund this money for families they didn't know? Well, really, the the special needs community in New York and Connecticut is a is a tight knit one. And, you know, having had the benefit of, you know, sitting on the board of an of a national, you know, autism nonprofit before this. Is that what you do? Is that what that's you did? what I did then. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't do this that now. This okay. is kind of my only the only game that I have right now. Um, and, you know, and really getting to know the community in Greenwich as well as, you know, the surrounding areas was important in, you know, in starting that in in getting out there. But it was really which is a pretty philanthropic community, it I is. have to say. It is, absolutely. Very. Yeah, they really are. Uh, this is remarkable. So how many, so this is a, so are the people who donate to self, are they, quote, members or like any other not-for-profit, they're just donors and then you have a board of directors? I mean, how does this work? That's absolutely right. We have an amazing board of directors, um, most of whom have been with us since the beginning. We have, obviously, donors who are, you know, driven to support this cause because of experiences in their own personal life with their own children. Perhaps they had the resources to place their child directly to a school like Eagle Hill or whatever. And then we also have support of a number of independent special education in the schools in the community, such as Winston Preparatory School. Oh, they're a sponsor for 15 years. Wonderful. I, we love them. They, they're Beth a Sugarman great, Beth Sugarman the is Beyond. the best, is the best. Beyond. Um, I was just emailing her last night because my son, the one who has autism, just received an acceptance to his um, his top choice college. So we were all Does he go excited. to Winston Prep? He doesn't now. Um, he but he did at one did. time? He did at one point. Well, we have interns on the Lisa Wexler show for 15 years from Winston Prep. Oh, that's amazing. I so, didn't know we that. Still have one every Wednesday. 
tremendous on the on the Wednesday half yes, day. Yes, that's correct. They come here. Yep. That's tremendous. Yeah. So Winston, um, Chapel Haven, uh, up in New Haven, American School for the Deaf, Villa Maria and Stanford. All of these are great sponsors and supporters of ours that have helped us That's through the brilliant. years. brilliant. All right, Christine, uh, Lai, we're going to be right back. We're going to take your questions. This is a really important guest who's on the show with us right now because she figures out and has access to money that helps poorer families with special needs. And there is an end game in mind, and we're going to be right back, and we're going to talk about that. We'll be right back. If it's happening in Fairfield County, Lisa has something to say about it. The Lisa Wexler Show on WICC 600 AM and 107.3 FM. We're talking with Christine Lai, who is the founder and executive director of SELF, S-E-L-F, which stands for Special Education Legal Fund, which whose mission, and it's a really cool mission, is that they collect money from families who want to donate to families who need money in order to advocate for their special ed kids. I have a few questions about this. Is this only for kids in Connecticut? It is for students in Connecticut and Westchester County as well. Okay, Connecticut and Westchester County. Is is this is the money specifically targeted for lawyers that then argue with public school systems that the public school system cannot provide an adequate education for their child? There are two programs that we have. The first program, the Legal Assistance Program, does exactly what you just said. The second program is an advocacy support program which in which families can access special education advocates in order to learn the system, get to know the procedures, and really just learn the process of advocating for their students with an eye to being able to do it by themselves in the future. So, for, so for example, for one child, a parent might say, this child is properly, with the proper supports, does belong in the public school system. Mm -hmm. But for another child, a parent may say, I've had it, I've been there, I've done that, we've tried everything, and I need another solution for my kid, Mm -hmm. and I need a lawyer to help me get that other solution. The law provides that students must have access to a free and appropriate public education, and they must be able to make meaningful progress in that program. If a student is not making meaningful progress in the program, if the student is not receiving access to the public curriculum that they're entitled to, that's when we step in. That's when we need to provide advocacy support through a lawyer so that family can, you know, you know, get over that obstacle of And you know, why is a lawyer from your experience, Christine Lai, 203-333-9422, why is a lawyer so necessary? It depends on the family and the situation, obviously. You know, in some cases, you know, look, I mean, we're coming out of the COVID pandemic, or or maybe we're not coming out of it, whatever we (laughs) want to talk about. Um, And, you know, what I've noticed, you know, since we've emerged in the last couple of years, you know, from that lockdown is, you know, however poorly the pandemic was for students with typical traditional learning needs, it was much, much worse for students with autism, students with behavioral challenges, students with dyslexia. So all of those students, some of whom had been kind of bumping along, you know, doing, you know, okay, and currently before the pandemic, emerged from the pandemic with their, their, you know, dyslexia, but also with new things, anxiety, depression. 
And so those students who entered the pandemic with gaps, because that's why you're in special education, because you can't access the curriculum, have now emerged from the pandemic with even greater gaps than before. And that's, you know, in, in many of those cases, you know, attorneys are needed to secure compensatory education for those students so they can make up what happened during the pandemic. In many cases, there are ancillary things that have happened to school districts, which are, you know, shortage of staff, shortage of funding. You know, those kids are suffering because they don't have a speech therapist because the speech therapist has quit or resigned or whatever. And they're still entitled to yeah. their speech therapy under the law. So that's those are the kind of things that an attorney's really, really effective. Yeah. In. And they get more respect in the room. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there, there really is that. That's it, a very really real is. thing. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. You know, parents are grappling with so many things and behavioral issues are another very real issue. And so you, you mix in behavioral, you mix in educational. There, there is this high bar that the law says as an achievable goal, but in real life we very often fall short. Our school systems are completely depleted. They can barely get a substitute teacher, much, much less special ed, right? Absolutely. So it's sort of a mess. It really is. It really is. It really is. So one, what are some of the more effective solutions Speaking to families now with special ed ed kids who are frustrated with their current situation, what are some of the more effective solutions that lawyers have been able to advocate for for these children? In the most extreme situations, you know, some students need to be outplaced to a independent special education school that provides specifically for the students' needs. Those are the most extreme cases. On the other side, you have families that need, you know, more specific, more, um, you know, more specific, more individualized support within their public schools. I mean, our goal really as parents is for our children to be in the public school. You know, it really is. It's not any parent's goal to be in a private special education school unless it's absolutely necessary. So on the one hand, one of the things that we've been really involved in getting for parents is access to uh, evaluations, educational evaluations. The neuropsychs. The neuropsychs, absolutely. Oh, they cost about five grand. They are expensive. Do you help pay for them for parents? So what we do is, I mean, neuropsychs are a right under the, or what, what is a right under the law is an independent educational evaluation. So when the school district evaluates your child as, they're, as they are required to do every three years, um, once when they're identified and then every three years after that, you are able to request what's called an independent educational evaluation. Evaluation. If you don't agree with the evaluation that the school district did on your child, you don't think it reflects your child's needs, doesn't sound like him, it just it, it isn't robust enough, it doesn't make recommendations that support what he needs in the school or she. And that is a, a very, very important right that most parents aren't aware of. And that we've been very, very active in supporting. Over and when the last you say of independent, so let's just be clear: we're chatting yeah. with Christine Lai, who is the founder and executive director of Self S E L F, and it's called the Sped Legal You can look up the website: the Sped S P E D Special Ed Sped Legal And Christine's address there is Christine at Sped Legal So let's just be very, very clear when we're talking about these neuropsychological evaluations. The key word is independent because right. the school system may not want to admit this, and, and we assume that people are doing the best job that they can. But there is a built-in conflict of interest in that, and let's just say it out loud, if a school district 
concludes that a child needs special ed, they have to provide the special ed. That's right. If they conclude that they're borderline or they don't have to provide it, then they don't have to provide it. So somebody working for the school system might be looked at with a little bit of a cynical view by a parent if the conclusion is this kid doesn't need special ed, when the parent may say, excuse me, you didn't take this test. You didn't look at this aptitude. You're not living with what I'm living with. So the independence of the examination becomes critical to its credibility. Is That's that absolutely correct? right. That's absolutely right. And, you know, and in, in addition to that, the independent educational evaluation is not just a neuropsych. It can be speech and language. It can be occupational therapy. Okay. It can be, you know, physical therapy. It can be, you know, assistive technology. It can be anything that the student needs to be you know, to really access that curriculum. So that's, And who pays for that? The school district would pay for that. And that's part oh, of the request process. I see. So when your student has their evaluation through the school and you don't agree because, you know, for whatever reason you don't agree with it, you don't think it's enough, you don't think they tested the right things, you know, all those things, you can make a request to your team that you re- that your student receives an independent educational evaluation. And do you get to then choose who the evaluator is as the parent? Ideally, because the word independent is in there, you would be able to select anyone you you would like to do the independent educational evaluation once the school agrees with you that that's necessary. In practice, it is more of a, you know, what I'd call, you know, because I'm feeling, you know, good this morning, a collaborative um, effort where, you know, you two, the the school and the parent mutually agree. On like a mediator. Kind of like a mediator. Okay. Exactly. Because they both want to have faith in the results. That's right. The school doesn't want to get a report from somebody that they think all the time concludes this yes, that's versus right. that. Right. They're and, looking for independence. Right. And the parent, on the other hand, doesn't want to just take the report of a evaluator who solely works for the school district and only does these things. Right. Because it's sort of like when the arbitrators, and I'll say this to you from your older background, from your prior background, when the arbitrators are chosen by the New York Stock Exchange for securities arbitration, they rarely find in favor of the individual stockholder because their next arbitration is paid for by the New York Stock Exchange. That's absolutely right. And so there it is. So there it is. Um, Christine Lai, thank you so much for joining us today. It's the Special Education Legal Fund. If you who are listening want to donate to it, it's holiday season, right? Wonderful. Uh, so please visit t- our website. Please visit the website. The website is spedlegalfund.org. Thank you so much for coming in today, Thank Christine Thank you so Lai. much for having me. This was wonderful. It really was wonderful. I'm so glad we found out that Beth Sugarman is, we're in the Mutual Devotion Society. She's Mutual the best. Admiration She's Society the best. for Beth Sugarman. <laughs> a shout out to Winston Prep. Absolutely. We'll be right back with more of the Lisa Wexler Show and a special conversation with Greg Katz, who is a leader in the Smart Surfaces Coalition world, when we return.